Now we're going to turn to Revelation, all right? Uh, I know that this is the part we've all been hoping for, waiting for. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. I want to invite Sean Perry to come up. Uh, she's going to read for us out of Revelation chapter 6 this morning. And if you're able, would you please stand once again um, out of respect for God's Word? This is something we do every week because we think it's important uh, to show our respect for the Word of God, which is why we're ultimately here uh, to listen and to hear uh, what it is that He has for us. So Revelation chapter 6, Sean, I'll pass it off to you. Good morning, church family. Revelation chapter 6, the seven seals. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellows and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and generals, and the rich and powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Church, hear the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Father, just a simple prayer this morning as we come into this text. Um, just help us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. 
Uh, Father, help us uh, by your spirit in us as your people to open up our eyes to truth, to lead us and guide us to truth. Father, help us. These are not easy things, but they're good things and they're important things. And you have given to them, them to us as your church as a gift. And so help us, we pray. I ask these things in your name. Uh, amen. So uh, super easy text, right? Nothing at all to talk about. Like we could cover this in the next five minutes. Like it'll be good, right? Now, listen, as we jump into uh, Revelation chapter six, let me just prepare you. Um, we're going to kind of go uh, a little bit of a fire hydrant here. Uh, and so let me just help you understand. Like we're gonna kind of walk through this text and help you see what this text is and what I think the Lord is showing us in this text. Um, but then we're going to get to application to that. So uh, as you're thinking through and you're like, oh man, like what? How am I going to apply a pale horse bringing sickness and death to my everyday life as I go to work, right? Like, I tr trust me, that's coming. Don't worry about it. But we need to get a grasp on what's happening in the seals uh, before we can ask the question, how do we keep this as a church? And so that's where we're going. I encourage you to jot a lot of notes down in regards to other scriptures that are referred to uh, because I don't have time to take you through them all. Uh, but they're all so important and so valuable. So let me help catch us up. Uh, to where we are. We already did this a little bit, but as you know, as we've seen, um, John has been given an open door into heaven, and he's beginning to see the things that are going on in heaven, and he has a vision of the throne room, and he sees the one who sits upon the throne, and he sees this image of the Ancient of Days holding a scroll. Now, we talked about last week what that scroll represents. That that scroll represents um, all of redemptive purpose of history, uh, God's intended purpose in history, his judgment, his wrath, all of that in the scroll that's going to be opened in the latter days. And we know that because this is the same scroll that we see in Daniel. Remember last week we talked about how Daniel has an angel who comes to him and he opens up all these things to Daniel and then the angel seals it and says, uh, this is sealed into the latter days. And Daniel says, well, how is this all going to come to pass? And then the book of Daniel kind of ends, and we're left wondering that. And then, Daniel, and then John sees the same scroll in the hand of the Ancient of Days, and we find John weeping because there's no one who can open it. And so John's thinking like, oh, this is the scroll of Daniel, I'm about to see it get opened. And then they say, well, who is there? And then when he's able, and he starts to weep, but then he hears of the Lion of Judah, and he hears of the Root of Jesse, uh, the Lamb of God who's going to open up the scroll, and that's what he sees. And now we enter into that moment where the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, takes that scroll in his hands and begins to open up that, those seals. Now, I want us to have a little bit of an image of what this looks like. And so um, draw your attention to the screen. And according to Jesus, what we know to be true is that his birth was, sorry, I know that's really bright, but nonetheless, right? Um, his birth inaugurated the kingdom of God. Like Jesus says this multiple times. He says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus is acknowledging and he is saying that the inauguration of the kingdom is now here. It's represented in his birth in the manger, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, and ultimately into the ascension. His reign has been solidified. The kingdom has come. The inauguration is represented in him taking his place at the right hand of the throne of God. And John, seeing Jesus in heaven, 
as he's ascended, now beginning to take that scroll. And why this is important for us is because we see this as the fulfillment of the vision in Daniel, and it's signifying that the latter days are now beginning. Jesus is preparing the way. He is coming, present tense. Present tense, he is coming. That's out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. I'm not saying that. Like, that's his saying. He is coming. It's happening right now in this moment. He's stepped back into heaven, and, 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 and he is preparing, and he is moving, and he is working, and he is opening up the scroll. He will then refine and purify his creation with fire. So we know to be next, right? And not only is he going to refine his, purific- his, his, his creation with fire, but then comes the throne. We all stand before the throne. All of us, all created mankind will stand before the throne and he will say, for those who are mine, you go over here to eternal life. For those who are not mine, to you is eternal condemnation. And then we get our inheritance. I know that's a terrible picture of the earth, but it's the best I could do, right? Like we get our inheritance. We get what, what, what he's promised for us. And so here's what we see, that line that's on that picture, what that represents is from the inauguration of his kingdom until it comes is what we call the church age. It's the time in between while we're waiting for these things to happen. And we are going to begin to see judgments taking place during that time. Now, I know the question is when, when, when's it going to happen? Where is we at? That's not what we're getting to yet, right? We'll talk about that some What we need to understand is that we're in that latter-day time in which we see the the inauguration. We're waiting for Jesus to come. Now, before we get to the specific seals and what do they they mean and how do they uh, apply to our lives and why is that important for us, we need to understand something about judgment. We need to look at the foundations of judgment. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but I want to give us a 30,000-foot view because judgment's a hard thing to talk about, isn't it? Like judgment and wrath, these are not things that our world likes. In fact, there may be some of you here right now in this room or listening online who would think to yourself, how can God be loving and then us read all the stuff we're going to read in Revelation, right? Asteroids coming down and fire and brimstone and demonic hordes and all this crazy stuff that we're going to see. Like, how can that be a loving God? There's many people that the enemy has used the idea of God's judgment and wrath to keep them away from God instead of lead them towards God. And so we need to understand some foundations about his judgment before we get to them. So here's some things that are important for us. One, judgment comes from love. So I want you to think about what makes you the most angry? What is it in your life when it comes to you makes you go, I want justice. Like, I'm angry about this. I'm frustrated about this. Like, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I want to see something happen. I want consequences to come. What is it that causes that kind of reaction in you? Typically, it's when something you love, someone you love, which may even be yourself, experiences hurt, damage, harm, betrayal, some form of deformation, or, or what you love is threatened most. Right? When that happens, we demand judgment, don't we? Like we all do. And we've talked about this before, right? Like that's why when, when someone rapes somebody, we're like, man, that has to be dealt with. Because we care about the one that's innocence was taken from them. 
right? When your little girl at school is picked on by the bully, you demand that that kid be suspended because you love your daughter, right? Like, what would it say about you as a parent if you're like, eh, suck it up, just life. Like, you just didn't care. Like, you want judgment and consequence because of your love. You want her pain to stop. You want the effects of that to stop. Judgment isn't only about punishment. It's about a verdict that is given that says that this is wrong. This isn't right. I'm declaring this to be wrong. I'm declaring this to not be the way I intended it to be. And there's consequences when you step out of God's ways. See, without love, there's no desire to see something declared wrong. And we just don't care. Again, you don't love your daughter. Who cares if someone picks on her? Like, this is the reality of it. Church, we never can forget this. God's judgment exists because his love exists. It's love for you. It's love for me. It's love for creation. And don't forget this, it's love for his name. And you know what? That's not prideful because it's the best name. There is nothing better. And so he has judgment because of love. Second, it comes because of idolatry. Let me say, all sin, say it again, all sin is rooted in and birthed out of idolatry. All of it. Romans chapter 1, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the what? The creature rather than the creator. This is the issue. Your selfishness, your pride, your lying, your sin, your coveting, your jealousy, your anger, all of it is birthed in the love of the created, not the creator. Like, that's hard for us to see, right? Like, all sin comes from this thing, and God hates idolatry because idols lead his beloved creation to death. God has to judge those idols. He has to make the verdict. They are insufficient. And he has to declare them false. They are false gods. They are false hopes. They are false satisfiers. He has to judge the sin that comes from false worship. He has to. Because it needs to be declared the wrong way. We get this, right? Like When your kids lie, you don't just let them continue to lie. Like You discipline them. Like you bring judgment and say, no, no, this isn't the right way to live because you know that if you don't and that kid just grows up as a liar doing whatever they want, lying their life through, way through life, that's not going to go well for them. Is the sin a lie? Absolutely it is. But you make a judgment on that in your kids because you don't want them to walk in it and you want them to understand the right way. Next, judgment purifies the follower of Christ. As these things happen, they will deeply affect the world. But what is meant to judge the unbeliever and turn them to repentance is intended to strengthen, purify, test, and refine his people who are secure in him. It's an important thing for us to remember. First Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we're not going to be kept from all suffering in this world. And as these things happen in the world, and we read things that are happening in, the, in Revelation, some of them are going to affect the believer. But for the believer, it's intended to purify. It's intended to purify us, and we'll see it as we go. So let's jump into the seals. What is the nature of the latter days? What is it that we can expect? What's the nature of these things? John sees the first of the four seals opened, and with each one we see a horseman which represents a spiritual reality that has very real effects upon the physical world, consequences upon this earth, things that we can see and experience and feel and and that we're going to walk through. To understand these horsemen, we need to see that they're not unique to Revelation. Like we've said before, we're not seeing something new here. This is stuff that's been talked about. In Zechariah chapter 6, we see very similar horsemen, which are commanded to go and bring divine judgment They're also seen as the four winds in all the earth in Zechariah 6, which is important because in Revelation 7, the horsemen are synonymous with the four winds. And we're not just making that up. It's because it's there in Zechariah chapter 6. We also see allusions in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, where four particular disastrous acts are said are going to come upon Jerusalem. And get this, punishing the idolatrous majority while purifying the righteous remnant. Isn't that interesting? Like, that's the point, right? Like, it's going to punish and bring suffering to the wicked and yet purify the righteous. But maybe most instructive for us as we look at these four horsemen is to look at Jesus. It's always a good idea, right? Look at Jesus. What did Jesus say? Did he ever say anything about these four horsemen? Well, I believe that he did in Matthew chapter 24. Look at Matthew 24 with me. Verse 5 and 7. For many will come in my name. And this is Jesus speaking at the end of uh, of his ministry, towards the end of his ministry to his disciples who've asked him about the latter days. And he says, many are going to come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I believe that Jesus is talking about the horsemen. He's referring to the horsemen. He's helping us understand what the horsemen are going to look like when they're here, like what they're going to practically look like in our lives. And we have the first horseman. He's the white rider. Now, some would believe that that represents Jesus himself. Others would believe that that represents the gospel going forth into the world. I don't believe that that's the case, and here's why. One, we see Jesus represented as a white rider in Revelation chapter 19. It's very clear that this is Jesus as a white rider in Revelation chapter 19. Secondly, this white rider is with three other horses, which are very clearly spiritual beings apart from Christ, not Christ himself. And in fact, we even see these beings being restrained. Jesus doesn't get restrained. And yet, isn't it interesting that we have this white rider who looks a lot like Jesus looks 
in Revelation chapter 19. Now, why could that be? Well, I think it's because Jesus is telling us, even in Matthew 24, the white rider, it's going to be one who looks a lot like me. He's not seeking, but he's seeking to conquer. Conquer some very unique ways. I think that this represents counterfeit Christs in the latter days. Counterfeit Jesuses. Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to be a lot of people who come around looking like me, saying things like me. They're going to come to deceive you and conquer you spiritually. We see this idea of counterfeits throughout the book of Revelation, and Jesus explicitly is warning us to prepare for it. There is a white rider. He's here. He's here. You watch out for it. He's going to say, look, I'm Christ. I'm the Messiah. Look at me. And he's saying, watch out. Here's what I know to be true. Jesus, in Revelation 19, he's going to make it clear that when he comes, it is unmistakable. Amen? There won't be question when he comes back again. Now go back to our drawing from earlier. I believe that what's being said and what's being communicated is that from this moment in history, right here when Jesus ascends and he begins to open up the scrolls, that the latter days are going to be marked by countless false Christs, false prophets, false saviors seeking to deceive people, to pull them away from the truth. Have we not seen this in history? In Revelation, we hear about the Nicolaitans. We know about the Pelagius. Let's be a little bit more recent. We've got the Mormons. We've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got Islam. We've got the Moonies. On and on and on this goes. Time after time after time, someone coming and saying, look, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And what we find is that it's not. It's a false Christ. It's a false Savior. This is going to be all over the place. This is going to be happening all over the world from the time Jesus ascended until the time the end comes. It's not just false Christ, is it? I also believe that there's another rider. We see that. It's a red rider. It's the rider of war. Interestingly enough, the word that is slay in the book of Revelation is only ever used for Jesus, remember the lamb who was slain, and the people of God. We see it in Revelation 5, 6, 9, 10, and 12. Revelation 6, 9, 13, 8, 18, 24. Over and over again, talking about the people of God being slain. I don't think this is only referring to the people of God, but I think that they're certainly included in it. But I do believe what this is specifically saying is that men will spill the blood of men. Men will spill the blood of men. And again, have we not seen this on a massive scale increase since the days Jesus ascended? Have we not? Just, just think about the persecuted church. Just think about the persecuted church. Open Doors Ministry estimates that almost 6,000 believers were murdered last year. That's this room times six. Murdered last year just because of their faith. It's estimated that a million Christians were killed by the Nazis. 15 million were killed by Russia between 1950 and the year 1980. 200,000 estimated to have been killed by China in the Boxer Rebellion in the late 1800s. We have Iran, Sudan, the Congo. I could go on and on and on. 
Like we see this, don't we? We see the, the desire of it, and you say, well, what about, what about the rest of the world? Like, have we not seen horrific war after horrific war increase and increase? Even now, how many wars are we talking about? China, Taiwan, Ukraine, Russia. Like, I mean, there's so many. North Korea, South Korea. I mean, like, we could just go on. There's, it's all over the place. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return is going to be marked by the effects of these horsemen. War is here. The desire to kill others is present. But it isn't in there. The black horse is released, and we get famine. While this is not necessarily worldwide famine, we've seen tremendous times of famine in our lives and starvation. China, Russia, Ethiopia, Kenya. It seems that in the latter days, we will have seasons of dire want oftentimes leaving the pleasures of luxury untouched. I think that's what it means when it says that the oil and wine are left alone. Like when it talks about those scales, that's what it's talking about. It's famine and the raising cost of food, rising cost of food, but yet luxuries will be left alone. Do we not see this? We certainly know that in economic hard times are going to affect everybody, not just the world, but the church as well. Oftentimes more because of their faith. But then we get the pale rider, specifically pestilence. In the time since Jesus ascended, there's been no doubt that disease has marked this age, whether by natural means, caused by war, natural disaster, or famine. We've seen cholera and malaria and smallpox and the Black Death and the flu, COVID-19. Guess what? Not to be a Debbie Downer, there's more to come. Like that's what he says. That's what the scripture is telling us. Now, I, I want to stop for just a second because some of you are hearing this and be like, well, wait a minute. I thought the, the four horsemen was just one event in history that we're waiting for to happen right before Jesus returns. Uh, that's what I thought. Well, here's what I believe is the case. I believe, going back to the drawing, that we will see these things happen throughout history in ever-grading and more increasing Moments. They're going to become more significant, more intense, and more prevalent. Again, is this not what we've seen? Now, for some of you who are wanting for me to say, well, this is where the Antichrist is going to come, or this is where we're going to have that one war, like, I don't know. It may happen that way. It may not. The point is not for us to decide where we are on this timeline. The point is, how do we live regardless. Because these things are with us. Can anyone argue that they are not? They are with us. They are here. Testing is happening. Millions, billions of people are under the weight of these horsemen at some level, even right now, I believe. Now, I believe they're going to increase, and I believe it's going to get worse. I absolutely do. But what's interesting in the midst of this, the counterfeit Christ and the war and the famine and the pestilence, we now get a very interesting shift, do we not? We get an interesting shift when he opens up the fifth seal and we now hear the cry of the slain. As believers, how can we not lament the effect of these horsemen? Should this not be the mark of all believers that as this image gives us that the altar 
before the Lord of the prayers of the saints going before him over and over again as we lament these things happening, as we lament and weep and cry and ask for the Lord to move? Like, should this not be instructive for us of how we as Christians should pray in the midst of these things? And how do we pray in the midst of these things? We pray to the sovereign, to the sovereign one who sits upon the throne. Father, we cry out to you because we know the lamb reigns. We know the lamb is coming. We know that he has taken authority. We know that he is the king of kings, amen? Like in the midst of war and famine and hunger and hurt and hardship, like we cry out, never forgetting in the midst of suffering, he still sits upon the throne. We cry. We cry to the sovereign God, but we also cry to the sovereign God asking, how long? Have you ever felt the weight of that statement? Have you ever been in that space? How long? How long do I have to sit with the sick? How how long do I have to say no to my flesh? How long do I have to experience loss and death? How long do I have to see injustices? How long do I have to see betrayals? How long do I have to turn the TV on and see the effects of human trafficking? How long do I have to see the effects of earthquakes and starving kids? How long do I have to see that? How long do I have to see kids being abandoned by their parents and left on the sides of the street? How long? How long do I have to suffer with my pain? How long do I have to go to my home alone since I've lost my spouse? How long? See, I think so often, why I love this text, it reminds us, is that while it it talks about the slain, all of us at some level have experienced being slain. This This is the way it calls us. Like We bear our cross. We lay our lives down like we talked about last week. Right? And if you want a book on that, a great resource, there's a book called The J-Curve out of Info Central, and you can grab a copy of that. But we're all walking around as the slain. And we should all be crying out, how long? Like sometimes in Christian faith, don't we get this idea that in the midst of suffering, we should just be like, well, I trust in Jesus. All's good. Until it comes to you, and you realize how hard that is. And I love this text because it's reminding us it's okay for us as Christians to go, how long? This is hard. It hurts. It's painful. I'm grieving. Like I'm lamenting. We're given this picture in Revelation to say in the midst of these things, like it's okay. Not only to cry how long, but to cry, bring justice. Come on, God. Like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Come on. Like, I'm tired of seeing this. I want to see it fixed. I want to see it reconciled. I want to see it taken care of. And in this text, what is the answer of the Lord? Wait. Wait. And we get this picture of Jesus giving the saints who are crying out these things a robe of white as if he's saying, listen, I know it's hard now, but you will be on the right side of history when it's all said and done. Like, I know, 
He's just, wait, I got this. This isn't happening outside of my hands. Remember, I'm the lamb who's popping these seals open. Like, I'm not taking surprise. Like, this isn't something that's outside of me. I'm purifying you. I'm working on you as my believers, and I have your salvation in hand. Like, don't worry. Like, I got this. This is beautiful. And then from the fifth seal, after we hear the cry of the saints go out, and we see the Lord give this comfort, we see the sixth seal where all objects of false worship are removed. Why do I phrase it that way? Well, remember the text in Romans, that at the end of the day, at the end of all time, all who are not his are guilty of ultimately worshiping the created, finding security in this world. And now we see this world being judged, being declared unfit. It's all creation. It's no coincidence here that there's seven things mentioned in this last seal. Because remember, seven meets means whole, complete. There's earthquakes, the sun, the moon, stars, sky, mountains, islands, seven aspects of creation, complete judgment. This is a shaking to its very foundations. Nothing is left untouched. Like it is complete We know this because these are given to us regarding the end throughout the Old Testament. We see similar images in Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 34, Jeremiah chapter 4, even Jesus in Matthew 24. This is the final judgment. And it's not only going to come to all creation, but it's going to come to all the dwellers of the earth. There's that distinction made, right? Like, when are you going to be justice to those who dwell upon the earth? There's a distinction between those who are God's kingdom and those who dwell upon the earth. These are considered idolaters. They're considered unbelievers. Over and over again, we see this in Revelation. We also see this in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 20, we see people fleeing to the caves. Sound familiar? Why? Because of their idolatry. Hosea chapter 10, verse 8 Idolaters are crying to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. So we've come to this place. Well, now we're at the end. And you're like, wait a minute. Revelation's not done yet. Well, it's okay. Like, we'll get there. Like I said, like, there's lots more to come. We're going to have um, different sheets out to show you different ways of interpreting these things. But I think this is what's going on in this text. And trust me, there's much more that Jesus is revealing. But we've now seen... This entire epoch of time go past and look forward now to what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 7. But the question comes, what do we do with all that? How do we keep this? Like, What does this look like for you and for me in our lives right here, right now in this moment? How do we keep this? Well, first and foremost, we trust and we watch for his purifying work. As you experience trial in life, Are you asking the Lord to use it to refine you, to strengthen you, to test your faith? The message for us is that God is sovereign, even over the hard things. But he's good. He's good to those that are his. And we must not falter in our trust, nor our expectation of what he is doing. In our lives, we must all also consider that maybe he's removing an idol in our life. I don't talk about that much more in Revelation. 
But aren't we all tempted to trust things of this world, circumstances in this world? We've all got security blankets that we run to, things that we hope in. And this leads me to my next point. We're to lean into the true security blanket. Our health, our strength, wisdom, economics, food stores, your shelters, your guns, your ammunition. I know you all have them, right? Our vanity. These things, they become our hope. They become our security blanket. Like we wrap ourselves around when the world comes crashing down and we trust in those things. The world worships these things and anything that they believe can save them. There's a real temptation for us to fall into this. To wrap ourselves with these things instead of being the people of prayer, crying out to our sovereign king, waiting for him to come. Will we hold to the true Jesus in light of the counterfeits that want to itch our ears? Will we hold to the one who secures our future when threatened with violence or persecution or rejection? Will we hold to the true bread of life when famine comes? Maybe it's the famine of satisfaction. Maybe it's the famine of rest. Maybe it's the famine of peace. Will we lean into him, the healer of our souls? Or will we continue to lean into the world? Even as it's being caught on fire in front of our eyes. Next, we are to walk as exiles. Those who dwell on the earth, they're going to lose their dwelling won't they? But we won't. This is what First Peter says when he calls us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This text is urging us to live not like dwellers of the earth, but to live like someone whose home is somewhere else. To live like people who don't belong here, people who are exiles here, to not store for ourselves up in this place, but to recognize this place, it's all coming underneath the feet of the horsemen. Now, we know in the book of Revelation, this isn't everything. The horsemen only affect a fourth of the earth. The trumpets only affect a third of the earth. Then the bulls come. Well, that's just terrifying because it's everything. But it's all going to go away. And in the meantime, the Lord is saying, like, turn, repent, come to me. Find me. I'm the Savior. I'm the Sovereign. I'm the one that can sustain your future. I'm the one that has called you and ransomed you. Live as exiles. Live as sojourners. This is what it means to be a Christian and a believer in this day and age. Brothers and sisters, the effects of these horsemen are going to come to our lives. Now, we may be sheltered from it because we live in the West and the United States, but the other 7.7 billion people on this planet the vast majority of them are living underneath the hoof of the four horsemen every day. Don't buy into the illusion that this is not happening now. It is. It is. Are we going to be the people of God who lament with those who lament and rejoice with those who rejoice and pray and ask the Lord to come and cry out that he will come? I think that's the intent of this text. I think that if you're under the hoof of one of those things right now, maybe you're experiencing disease or famine or struggle or difficulty, like your hope is in the one who says, hang in there. Just wait. I've got your robe. I'm going to bring justice. 
all that causes you pain, I'm going to take care of, and I'm going to wipe away your tears. It'll be okay. I still see you. Some of you need that encouragement today. He still sees you. He's still in the midst of it. And it's not out of his control. It's not out of his control. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this text. And there's so much here. I mean, we, we could talk about each of these things for probably weeks. But Father, I think at the end, for us all, the great call is to keep our eyes transfixed upon you, the one who has it all in control. That while we cry out and we lament of the effects of a broken world and we lament on the effects of the end coming and the judgments that are coming upon this world, we can trust you to bring justice. You will. We can trust you to be there for us, to purify us, work in us, test us, so that in the end we can Stand in confidence when you return. Well, that's our hope. That's our prayer. Father, I pray that you would, you, you would anchor these truths into our lives so that as other people are suffering through these things, we can, we can point back to what you're doing. We can point back to the lamb. We can point back to the altar and the one who hears our prayers. We can point back to the hope we have, the inheritance we have. And ultimately, when the world cries out, who can stand, we can give them an answer, which we get to talk about next week. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you would use this in our lives to help us uh, to walk as exiles and sojourners, to, to trust in no other thing but you. Father, I pray that you would help us to just throw our cares upon you because you see us.